This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 377, January the 2nd, 1997. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and I have the pleasure of meeting here with Colonel Doner. Now, those of you who've been with us a few years have heard Colonel Doner on other occasions. This evening will be a little different. First of all, a little bit about Chalcedon. As you've noticed in reading Chalcedon, we have worked to help other organizations and other groups that are not a part of the Chalcedon organization, but are a part of us in that we share a common cause and work together. We do not believe that it is our province to try to centralize these groups or to control them or to influence them in their own way. They can do a better job than we could, and that's why they're doing it. Well, Colonel Doner has a remarkable background in politics for many years, for a time having an office in the White House, and in recent years very, very active with his own organization, a very notable and important missionary group working in a number of places. Let me add that Calcedon is grateful to Colonel Doner because he is our financial consultant and uh, manager and so on, and is doing much to help us. Colonel, it's a pleasure to have you here this evening. Would you tell us about your organization, the name, the address, and uh, the phone number, too, so that anyone interested can uh, contact you, uh, and we hope they will help your group which is doing remarkable things in several continents. Colonel? Well, thank you very much, Rush, uh, for the opportunity. And just want to tell all of our listeners um, that, uh, uh, Rush, you have just yourself have been so generous uh, with your own support and the magazine uh, over the past few years that uh, much of what we have done, um, you've opened some doors. And even as we talk today about many of the uh, different groups we're um, helping and working with in various countries, we have uh, discovered these groups uh, through uh, your own good offices or read about people in the pages of uh, the report and then we've um, you know, begun working with them. Um, so um, I also want to mention just how unusual it is, as I'm sure all of our listeners will agree, to find uh, an organization like Calcedon and a man like Dr. Rushduni who spends such a, a large amount of uh, his own resources helping other groups and asking nothing back in return. Uh, very unusual. We, <laughs> I mean, if you think of all the other ministries uh, that uh, even you may be supporting, how many of them are busy promoting other groups? I'll guarantee you, um, you know, maybe 1% of them, uh, if that. So it's a very rare, a very rare thing that that uh, Dr. Rushdoony does here, and we are grateful for him. 
Um, one of the things I'd like to talk about, and actually, Rush, since I've uh, seen you last time, we've had a new development. As you know, we had a number of groups that uh, we were kind of working with, and they all came together and formed something called the Samaritan Group. Uh, which is based on the title of a book I wrote about 10 years ago called The Samaritan Strategy, A New Agenda for Christian Activism, which talked about uh, our need to basically um, uh, follow Christ in, in helping others and uh, to use the uh, servant strategy to disciple the nations. Uh, you would disciple a nation first by serving. Um, so hence the name Samaritan uh, Group, uh, and it's composed now of about a dozen organizations around the world, and others are joining. We expect Peter Hammond from South Africa and his group to join. Uh, one of our key um, organizations, actually three of our key organizations, are from Germany uh, under the leadership of Dr. Thomas Schirmacher, yes. who um, I met through you and who's obviously on the uh, is, is one of the uh, monthly contributors to uh, the report. So we now have a dozen international organizations that are, and I won't go into explaining how all that works, it, it's, you know, be rather, you know, unnecessary, just um, uh, I think it's enough to say that we, these groups are now working together under an umbrella of, called the Samaritan Group, and what we are up to, I know everybody's wondering, what's the point here? <laughs> what are they doing? Uh, what we are up to, Rush, is to reconstruct nations uh, who happen to be receptive. And I've said that this way on purpose because I know um, the key of what I've just said is nations that are receptive. Here, I think all of our listeners are aware that um, America at this point in history is not very receptive to the idea of being reconstructed. Um, certainly the secularists aren't, and, and the churches, uh, you know, aren't either. But in many nations, um, the culture is much more open to um, addressing the uh, problems that they face uh, through biblical law. And what we have done is try to find some of those nations that we felt were open to the gospel and to go in and begin uh, working uh, with uh, leaders within the country to reform the church and to reconstruct uh, the culture and the government just as you have laid out in your 70-some uh, books, Rush. Now that's a little capsule. I know I want to talk about some of the different countries we're working in and what we're doing, but I don't want to just you know, continue to monopolize. Um, should I give the address up front and then I'll give it, give a, it twice, again surely. at the mm -hmm. end? So for those of you that um, think you might want to know more about, let me give you our address now and we'll repeat it again at the end of the tape. Uh, it's the Samaritan Group and the address is 12215. So that's 12215 University Boulevard. Suite 130, and it's Orlando, Florida, home of Mickey Mouse, that's easy to remember, 32817. I'm not implying that our work is Mickey Mouse, however. Um, so before I go into like talking about several of the different nations, um, 
you know, do we want, does anybody want to ask a question or make a comment or? Yeah, Colonel, would you be willing to just go into a little more detail? You talked about the Samaritan strategy. Um, I've read the book and it's outstanding. One of the points that you make in the book, in fact, the main point is that ultimately politics is not the answer in reconstructing a culture. Uh, we need to be involved, but it's not basically the answer. The point you're making is if we're going to follow the Lord, we need to be involved in godly private charity. Now, would you talk about how that relates to the Samaritan group, uh, that idea, first of all, and then how it relates to the Samaritan group and what you're doing? Well, as you know, Andrew, um, my years uh, in politics was based on, you know, the theory that you're talking about, that politics is the answer. And even as a leader of the Christian right, that was pretty much my working theory. Um, the Samaritan strategy was a breakthrough for me and many others in realizing that if we wanted a community to follow our agenda, the way to do it was not to go in uh, as a political front and just start propagandizing our point of view. The way to go into a community was to begin serving it, because as you begin serving your way up, for instance, you volunteer on all sorts of local committees or you open up various, uh, I mean, there's a hundred different uh, needs in every community, either with the youth, with the elderly, with the sick, uh, with orphans, with widows, with crime, with illiterate people, hungry people, so forth, and so on. Um, many things that we can do as Christians to help serve in the community, both in private groups or in, in some sort of a quasi-governmental you know, committee where they have citizens volunteer their time. So the concept in this country now was, which is when that book was addressed to really the United States, uh, was to urge our people to uh, begin serving the community in various methods and gain a reputation within the town like the elders of the gate you know as mm -hmm. we know from the biblical model why were those elders there they didn't get there because they got voted there because they gave the best speech or had a report card that they handed out the elders got there because they demonstrated wisdom and stewardship and service and of course obviously they demonstrated a tremendous knowledge of god uh, of god's uh, law but the principle here is that if you will serve your community, you will be given, um, as you do that, you of course are given responsibility for whatever task you volunteered for. If you volunteered to run a soup kitchen, you obviously have the responsibility for that. Um, and responsibility, and here's the key, listen carefully, if we want to lead our communities, responsibility always leads to authority. If you have the responsibility, you are given the authority, and then if you do that well, it leads to greater authority. Here's a simple example. You join some sort of a fraternal or religious, you know, just an association, a club. You volunteer to be the secretary, so you take notes at meetings or, or send out message uh, notices, whatever. It's not a very important job. Um, but you'll notice that when you volunteer to be secretary, the first thing that happens is you have certain responsibilities. And as you carry them out responsibly, you are given the authority to do so. So now you are a person of authority. You have all the authority that that, that job is legally entitled to. If you fill it, and even then you say, well, that might be inconsequential because secretary is not very important. But watch this. A person who serves faithfully as secretary, then can the next year be nominated as treasurer or vice president, and then with that, 
fulfilling that responsibility well and faithfully and that authority, they eventually are qualified and have earned the right to do what? To be elected the head of the local Kiwanis Club, this, the president. Well, that simple little example applies to the entire city, into the county. The problem with our people and myself is we wanted to go in and run for Congress the first day that we got active. Um, and what the Samaritan strategy said is no, spend five or ten years serving the city uh, in, in, a, in a much less glamorous way and then let, let your record of service elevate you up. Um, and that theory is what, um, I shouldn't say a theory, it's a methodology. That methodology we're now transferring to the third world. Well, it's a biblical idea. Uh, the Bible says if you're faithful in that which is least, you'll be faithful in that which is uh, much. And what you're really suggesting, it seems to me, is a, it's a bottom-to-top uh, approach rather than a top-down, heavy bureaucratic top-down approach. Exactly. You've done a great deal in Central America, Africa, and elsewhere, and taking people out of refugee camps and teaching them to be useful people. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and similar programs that you are conducting? All right, Rush. Uh, and incidentally, since you mentioned refugee camps, um, I, was, I, I, was <laughs> I was not even going to talk about this. I didn't even think about it. But um, because this is something that we're kind of doing on the side. But for those of your listeners that are concerned with the tremendous upheaval that we've seen in Central Africa with millions of refugees coming out of Zaire and into the Rwanda Burunda area. And uh, your magazine has printed a very uh, incisive article by Peter Hammond on this. And our group was mentioned in, in one of those articles. Uh, but if, if some of your listeners would like to help with um, the process of not only resettling those refugees, but more importantly, taking care of the orphans. Uh, our organization is um, uh, doing several things. And let me explain the problem. First of all, um, number one, you've had millions of people slaughtered in those countries over the last several years, creating hundreds of thousands of orphans. But just this last month, as we've been reading, or last, I should say, maybe two or three months, reading the headlines, and you, we've read about this million and a half refugees that trekked out of Zaire mm -hmm. into Rwanda. Now, I want our people listening to realize they didn't get in their automobile and leave home. They walked over 100 miles, most of the way without shoes, in jungle, and most of the way while being shot at, so they were on the run. In this process, over 84,000 little children were lost, separated from their families. We now have 84,000 new orphans. And what would happen is a family, first of all, you've got a million people that are kind of moving at a trot, so it's a little chaotic, to say the least, and they're not moving on an eight-lane paved freeway. They're moving on jungle trails and through jungle. Um, and then when they would be attacked by three different armies along the way, uh, of course, and, and particularly at night, all pandemonium would break loose and families often with eight or ten children would just run. In this process, 84,000 children were separated from their parents. Many of these children were even shot or, or, and wounded in various other ways. Um, we are now trying to take care of these children. We have opened up two orphanages. Uh, we have about 100 children at each. 
Um, and uh, we have now contacted um, several groups in Burunda and Rwanda um, who have asked for our help in taking and opening up to several thousand more children. So, um, of course, all of this takes finances, so we're simply saying, you know, whatever donations people might want to send. Um, and, and, and let me say, with, when we get donations through Calcedon, because Rush has been generous enough several times to ask people to help us, uh, we do something that we, not, we don't do normally. But uh, when we get your donation, um, and we know, because we, we, we can tell where it's from, it's not from our normal mailing list, we send 100% of whatever you send directly to the field. You know, we don't take out our normal 20%, you know, operating, you know, overhead. Mm -hmm. So somebody sends in $100 or $10, you know, the same amount will be sent to, uh, for instance, uh, these are orphanages. Uh, so that's the refugee crisis. But... Um, Rush, I think what your listeners would be most interested in uh, is what we're doing in, as you mentioned, Central America, and I'll mention one country in Africa, to actually bring the message of Reconstructionism home uh, in those countries. And Nicaragua, um, which has been written up several times in the pages of the Calcedon Report, our work there by Joseph McCullough several years ago, um, Nicaragua is really our, what should I say, our prototype. And what happened there is we went in right after um, the Sandinistas were defeated in the first democratic election. Mrs. Chamorro was elected in 1990. And the first thing we did was to say, well, first of all, we had a wonderful opportunity, and I want our listeners to appreciate what better country to reconstruct than a country that had been under a, um, I shouldn't even call him a right-wing dictator, that's too much of a compliment. Um, uh, he was a very, uh, Somoza, who was corrupt and monopolistic. He wasn't a capitalist at all. Uh, it's just one of his old land-owning families, very corrupt for 10 years, raped the country, took all the money from the treasury, and then after him they had 10 years of communism. So this is a country that was a mess, and matter of fact, it's the second poorest country in the entire Western Hemisphere. Only Haiti is worse off. So here we have a basket case of a country. What better place to set as an example this, you know, of, of Christians being able to go in and rebuild that country along a Reconstructionist model? And when we went in, we, the first thing we did, which is totally the reverse of all missionary groups, which would have gone in you know, distributing you know, uh, you know, leaflets for people to read, of course, uh, you know, people who can't eat, um, first thing we did is said, let's rebuild the economic base. So with your help, Rush, and with Joseph McCullough here at Calcedon, we uh, built, and some of our listeners um, I also contributed, I know they did, uh, we built a $100,000 what we call a microenterprise loan fund. And basically what that does is um, uh, it loans small amounts, $500 to $1,000, to families to start a business. Now, I know our listeners are thinking, well, what can you start for 500 uh, Our sound technician, Bob, is over there nodding his head, saying, uh, $500, you know, that won't even pay the rent on, a, on an office space here for one month. But in Nicaragua, $500, $1,000 opens up a fruit stand, a vegetable stand, buys 10 sewing machines, uh, so you, you start a seamstress business, um, and things of that nature. 
um, these little businesses, we've now started well over, uh, in the last three or four years, well over 300 businesses. Uh, and each year now, it's growing exponentially. So this year alone, we'll probably start like 150 businesses, uh, creating thousands of jobs. Some of these uh, companies are quite complex, and they employ 20 or 30 people. You'll get a kick out of this. We were down there for an international board meeting, and um, we ate at several of our different uh, microenterprises, a little restaurant that somebody had started, and another place we went, uh, and um, it was a pizza factory. And so they had 12 people, and you know, pizzas must have been made like this in Italy. <laughs> they were all standing one after another. It was a human assembly line, but they had no machinery. Everything was just, you know, being done by hand. But the thing I got a kick out of is not just that our loan had started this pizza factory, but to show you how all this interconnects, when we had our board meeting, the pizzas were brought to us by a man on a motorcycle with one of those big pizza carrier units on the back of his motorcycle. You see, he was a separate um, business loan. Mm -hmm. He got the idea, he knew that we had started a pizza company and he came to us and said, how about if you give me $500 to buy a motorcycle and then I can deliver those pizzas and he made a contract with the pizza company. Now all of these loans are paid back in six months. We have a 99% uh, return rate of, of loan repayment so they can be, you know, then re-loaned. What we were doing here was much more than just appeared on the face of it. It appeared on the face that we were just doing some sort of an economic thing. But here, I think, was the genius of our strategy to reconstruct Nicaragua, is that these entrepreneurs were all being discipled. They had to attend a weekly meeting where they were not only taught um, the uh, ABCs, the basics of uh, their business and accounting and you know so forth, but they were discipled in, uh, in the gospel. They were discipled uh, in the law. Um, and what we got from them was a commitment to, to take 10% of their profits and put them back into um, their community, into orphanages, into medical clinics, into feeding the poor. And we showed them how to do that. Uh, out of the several hundred businesses that we started, we recruited the, creme, uh, the cream of the crop, maybe 30 men and women, who we also disciple in a leadership session every week to be leaders of their country. Some of these men and women are now on the National Executive Committee of the Conservative Party of Nicaragua, which is one of the three major you know, parties. Um, one of the leaders of this microenterprise process is now discipling two Supreme Court members and two members of Congress and a half dozen other political leaders every week in his home. Um, so we went, f so what we did is we combined the economic approach with discipleship and then we, then we are doing much more than that. Um, through the same team of people that we planted there in Nicaragua, we um, built a large uh, orphanage uh, and then are supporting three or four more orphanages and feeding centers. So altogether we care for maybe 500 children uh, every day in Nicaragua. And um, we also distribute massive amounts of food and medicine and so forth through the country, throughout the country. Um, now, what has happened 
and here's the whole message of, of why this strategy works. What has happened there is because we went in and served and took the responsibility, you know, we, we said we we're going to do these big things, these big projects, and we actually did them. Now here comes the authority, and how, what does it look like in Nicaragua? The president of the country calls us up. The president, uh, we've had donors who gave us uh, significant, you know, gifts, $10,000. They were very surprised when the president of the country wrote them a personal thank you letter. Mm -hmm. Thank you for helping the Samaritan group do this work. It's essential to our country. The Nicaraguan Congress, which is composed almost half of communists, gave us, a, well I shouldn't say that, they're Sandinistas and now they're a little bit different, they're kind of reformed socialists now, so who knows what they are. But the Nicaraguan Congress voted unanimously to give our charity down there exemption from all their normal taxes and custom uh, fees and so forth and so on. Um, when cabinet members, we built this orphanage out in the middle of nowhere, the president and three cabinet members appeared to, uh, to christen it and actually the cabinet members, all three of them actually stayed overnight there. Um, this is a, tr now imagine this happening in America. You know, we, we can't even get a congressman to send us a personal letter. You know, you get form letters, let alone uh, this sort of uh, activity. But the, re oh, the vice president of the country, the former university uh, professor, uh, Virgil Godoy, uh, Dr. Godoy would call up our manager in Nicaragua and say, uh, gee, uh, Mario, I just ran into uh, several uh, families that I think would be uh, good prospects for your loan fund. Can you interview them? So we have uh, captured the imagination uh, and, uh, of the whole country. And what this has done in concrete terms is open the door for our message and our people know what the message is and they are very clear and they say we are not here, we are not evangelicals, this is not revivalism, we are not, you know, not here to just quote unquote get everybody born again, you know, we are here um, to disciple this whole country for Christ, uh, we are here to move the nation to a biblical law base uh, and the reason that you have for listening to us is to see the job that we have done so far. So I'm not saying that everybody in Nicaragua says, oh great, we can't wait to become a Christian country. I'm not saying that everybody down there is reading uh, um, the institutes. But what I am saying is that there is tremendous openness now because we have earned by serving we have our people, not me, because I'm not down there in Nicaragua. My job is to kind of raise the money and kind of admin and uh, you know watch over things. But our people down there have earned the right to lead. And um, and uh, as a matter of fact, um, our our lead man down there was asked to be the vice presidential candidate this election for the conservative party, which he turned down because he felt that the work he was doing with us was more important than being elected vice president, which, you know, I was you know, pretty astounded by. But um, so that's, that's our work in Nicaragua. I want to hit Mexico and Uganda, um, but do we have any questions on, uh, on Nicaragua? How does uh, your approach differ from the uh, U.S. Agency for International Development? Um, that's a great question. Um, 
Well, of course, their their approach would be obviously be entirely uh, secular, and not just non-religious, but you know, anti-religious. Now, economically, it would be very similar. You know, they micro enterprises are often used by by the government, American government, or other charities like that. So, what we have done is simply used a tool that the secular world finds very um, uh, effective and efficient, meaning this small loan uh, fund idea, and use that as a basis for, um, you know, discipling the people that we're dealing with. Now, for instance, AID offered, Agency for International Development from the United States government, was quite willing to fund, you know, to give us millions of dollars once they saw what we were doing. By Russia, I haven't told you this, um, but to accept their money, of course, we would have to follow their restrictions, which meant we couldn't preach, we couldn't teach, we couldn't make all of our loan applicants, uh, you know, attend our our Bible training sessions. And and incidentally, our library down there is equipped uh, with um, all of uh, Russia's literature. Um, the institutes are popular within our leadership circle. We have Juan Calvino all over the place. John Calvin is available in Spanish, and our people are trained by Juan Calvino. But of course, if we had accepted that AID money, we would have had to quit all of our educational programs. And I was proud of our people in Nicaragua. They said, we don't want the money. We don't want the money if it means that we have to give up the message, because this is why we're doing it. So the answer, I guess, to your question would be, for us, the economic thing is very secondary. The gospel message is primary. For all the other groups, the reverse is true. What are your activities in Mexico? Mark was waiting for you to ask me that. Okay, Mexico. Um, what I want to talk about there is a work that uh, Dr. Rush Dooney and I spoke at uh, the church down there. Um, Oh, I don't remember, um, six years ago, probably, something, something like that. that yeah. And um, this is an amazing work in, in Mexico. Uh, and Rush, I was just there. We had our international board meeting in November there. I almost never got out of there because of the ice storms. You know, last time I was traveled, it was ice storms. Now I'm sitting here with you all, and we're surrounded by floodwaters in, uh, in Northern California. But uh, what we have in Mexico is a man by the name of Josue Lopez, who 30 years ago uh, reclaimed a garbage dump. It was just a large garbage dump, or had been used as a garbage dump. It was kind of a, a dirt hill in the middle of Juarez, which is a city of one million people, right over the border immediately adjacent to El Paso, Texas. And um, he started a, um, because there's so many street children there, he started an orphanage. And today, um, uh, and Josue is one of our international directors and a member of our, of our Samaritan group. Um, due to uh, assistance from uh, Dr. Rush Dooney and ourselves and a few others, uh, he has an orphanage, uh, which is probably 10,000 square feet uh, with uh, over 100 children. Uh, he has a first-rate school, which has yes. even been licensed by the government, which is very difficult in Mexico. Uh, of course, he has a church. But the big thing, and Rush, I believe you were down there to help us dedicate the That's medical right. clinic. Uh, this was a medical clinic that our group uh, donated $50,000 to, and uh, a number of church volunteers from Dennis Peacock's churches and others um, 
volunteer their label, labor to build. Uh, and since you were there, Rush, at that medical clinic, um, through our German groups and with the help of Dr. Schermacher, uh, we just completed a medical laboratory. Uh, we have, um, and now we have a first-rate surgery unit. So this is actually a small hospital. Yeah. Now, again, to our listeners, this may seem relatively meaningless, you know, because here in America, we have a very nice medical clinic uh, on every corner and, uh, you know, three or four good hospitals in every medium-sized town. But in Juarez, there's maybe one or two hospitals, period. The medical clinics they have there are garbage. None of them are nearly as nice as the one that we have. And there's a little difference uh, with our medical clinic, and that is that we don't charge anything. So we are giving our medical services away to the orphans and to the poor. Now, if people from the community want to come, and we know that they you know, actually have some money because they have jobs, then they pay a very modest fee. Uh, for instance, I think for having a uh, baby, delivering a baby, the charge for them would be maybe $50. Um, normal throughout Juarez would be $300 to $1,000 in a regular hospital. And of course, I think for my child, a few five years ago, I, th I think it was $3,000. So you can see $50 for a state-of-the-art clinic is, is quite good. Um, just this month, they informed me at the clinic that uh, they had somebody donate to them a $100,000 x-ray machine. So the clinic continues. It has a dental unit. Um, the clinic continues to expand there. Um, one of the other, th we did one of our loans there. Rush, you'll be fascinated by this. I had never seen this before, but uh, several years ago, we loaned a young man who was one of the um, orphans. He graduated from the orphanage and wanted to go into business. He seemed to have a good business head. We loaned him $2,000. This was five years ago. Now he paid us back a couple of years later. Um, we went down to see what he did with that $2,000. This young man, who is now early 30s, owns one half of the entire marketplace for the city of Juarez. This huge marketplace visited by all the tourists. He has one stall after another. Now. So we might say, well, so what? Well, the point is, what is he doing with the money? He's donating it back to, to the orphanage, to the medical clinic, and not only that, but he has gotten a dozen of other former or, uh, young men and women who have gone through the orphanage. Remember, the orphanage has been there for 30 years, so these kids have grown up now. He's gotten a dozen of the, of the adult graduates. They have formed a gr uh, group called Youth with a Vision. Now, it's not Youth with a Mission, which is a group that some people may have heard of. It's Youth with a Vision, and their idea is to um, uh, be kind of a, um, uh, what do I want to say, uh, a group of graduates that helps raise money and do things for the orphans. And every day, one of these graduates is there teaching a class. They're, the day I was there, they were teaching music. Um, they've all requested copies of uh, your institutes and Juan Calvino, which we're in the, the um, process of getting them. Um, and incidentally, this is one of the things um, that if any of you listening uh, would care to donate um, some funds or some computers to uh, when I was there, they wanted to um, get um, 30 computers so that uh, donated to the school. Uh, and here's how, how silly some of these things are. 
they even had two dozen computers that were donated, but they didn't have the $300 they needed to ship the donated computers across the American border. So just $300, for instance, could end up getting these kids several thousand dollars worth of, uh, or tens of thousands of dollars worth of computers. In any case, um, just as in Nicaragua, by serving, let's get back to our, our strategy here uh, and tie all this together. By serving the people of Juarez and Mexico, our leadership there, namely Josue Lopez that you know, Rush, he has earned a great reputation in Mexico. So today, here's what's happened. He's personally discipling 20 ministers from around the country that are hundreds of miles away from him. Um, he is... Uh, personally discipling two or three congressmen in Mexico City, which is a thousand miles from him, and perhaps to me most exciting of all, this young man who I mentioned, his name is Jose, who I, the entrepreneur who now owns half the marketplace in town, this young man who learned at the feet of our man, who in turn learned at your feet, Rush, this young man is now the head of the Human Rights Commission for the entire state that they're in there in Mexico. Now, what is the job, and our people need to listen carefully because this is again how to work your way up into leading your country. What is the job of the Human Rights Commission in Mexico? It's very interesting. It is, and what is this commission? The co this commission is composed of all evangelical denominations and organizations in Mexico. And as I'm sure everybody listening knows, evangelicals up until recently were greatly persecuted in Mexico. And they're still not exactly, you know, the favorite kid on the block. And they are still persecuted in more of the remote areas. Um, I would say today there's a lot of discrimination against them. So evangelicals, who are millions strong in Mexico, formed this Human Rights Commission. Um, and it's so powerful. And its job, of course, is to monitor, well, when... Uh, when are the rights um, of evangelicals been um, impugned? Uh, when are we being discriminated against by the government or anybody else? This group has become very powerful, and the gov and the media and the government now listen to this group. And what I'm saying is, our man, our Reconstructionist guy, is the number one guy, the chairman of this group uh, for his for his state. And I think there are like 15 states in in Mexico. Um, you can imagine the influence, and the funny thing is, as you're well, as everybody here is well aware, Reconstructionists are not always real popular in evangelical circles. And here's an official evangelical organ that has elected a Reconstructionist as its chairman. And um, of course, he's obviously not batting them over the head with the fact he's a Reconstructionist. He's just doing the work. He's doing the work. He's doing the teaching. He's just not using labels. But because, getting back to our example, he, he didn't start off as chairman of this group. As a matter of fact, if he hadn't been doing the good work he was doing with the orphanage uh, and then becoming a prominent businessman, he would never have gotten invited. But then they invited him on, and he served on the committee. Then he served as vice chairman. And now, within three years, he is, he is chairman of this. So in Mexico, uh, we're making... Um, you know, good headway, and um, I'm sure there's some things I should say about Mexico, and I could, but let me just skip to Africa for a moment. Um, 
a lot of our readers are reading about Peter Hammond, who is doing, who we are also working with, who is doing marvelous things uh, in many countries in Africa. Um, and we, as I just mentioned, we work with Peter in some areas. But what I'd like to mention um, uh, in um, uh, in uh, in Kenya and Uganda, we have been particularly active. And let me talk about Uganda. I think that's the most interesting th uh, thing. Uganda and Zambia. Uh, these are countries that are very open to the gospel. I think we know, and I believe that the Calcine Report has carried, I know it has, an article by, I think, maybe Peter Hammond on Zambia in the last year or two, um, yes. where he talked about the president and vice president yes. of Zambia are Christians who are essentially being discipled by Peter himself, which is pretty exciting. And... Um, the vice chairman of the Samaritan Group, uh, who is a good friend of, of yours, Rush, Monty Wilson, mm -hmm. just spent, as you know, just spent several weeks. As a matter of fact, I think he has an article due for, mm -hmm. for the report. Yes. Monty just spent several weeks in Zambia ministering to the um, cabinet there uh, on economic principles and biblical law. And the president had Monty picked up when he got to the airport. Of course, Monty didn't, this is funny. If it had been me, I probably would have had a heart attack. Monty didn't know what was going on. He just got off the airplane, and the police came up to him immediately and said, Are you Dr. Wilson? So he hesitated and thought, Oh, no. They must know I'm connected with a colonel donor, and, you know, I'm going, shoot me. I'm going to jail. <laughs> um, and so he said, Yes. And they said, Well, the president has asked us to escort you through customs so you don't have to, you know, go through that. And, of course, they took him to the VIP reception room. And, unfortunately, he was not able to meet with the president um, or the vice president because they were both, um, I believe, out of the country um, or in some sort of a meeting or something. But what did happen uh, is that Monty was interviewed on state television every night. Mm -hmm. And, apparently, the vice president was able to watch him one night uh, sent him a personal note saying, Dr. Wilson, please come back so I can spend some time with you personally. So this is a country, again, for our listeners, where the president and the vice president and various members of Congress are saying, how do you apply biblical law to our nation? For instance, Monty was there telling them how to deal with pornography. They said, we want to outlaw pornography, but on what basis do we do it? How do we control free enterprise from getting, because you can argue that, well, you know, free enterprise and we should be free to sell pornography or we should be, you know, free to sell drugs or whatever. And they're, they're, this is a former socialist country. They don't know how to handle free enterprise. They don't know how to handle the moral issues. And they are open to, uh, to being taught in Uganda, we have very much the same situation, uh, except the country is much more desolated than many. Uh, you'll re our listeners will remember that uh, the infamous Idi Amin, a uh, great uh, example of uh, Muslim goodwill and charity, uh, since he is of the Islamic faith, uh, murdered several million of his own people. He was chased out of office by Milton Obutu, who then proceeded to murder just as many. And so you have a lot of dead people, and literally there are bones and skeletons stacked around the country, and that's not an exaggeration. But now the greatest uh, curse of all has happened, the heterosexual transmission of AIDS, not homosexual, but the heterosexual transmission of AIDS has almost destroyed the entire generation between the ages of 20 and 40. What this means is that there's a lot of children whose parents are dead. 
and there's approximately, at the end of the Civil Wars, there were like 600,000 orphans. It's projected because of AIDS, within the next year or two, there'll be 6 million orphans. Hmm. This isn't a country of only 20 million people. There's nobody to take care of these children. Now, right now, their grandparents are trying to take care of them, but obviously that's pretty hard on grandparents if there are grandparents. And some of the grandparents are also dying of AIDS, not because they got it through sex, but, you know, through other, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, methods. Or they're dying from other illnesses there. So Uganda is a basket case. And in the middle of this, we have founded something called uh, the New Hope Campus. Um, and it consists of a, uh, a large uh, school, uh, an orphanage. We have over 100 children there now, a medical clinic. Um, and, and doing many things to serve the community. And now you see, if we're listening, we realize that there's a pattern here. Nicaragua, Mexico, Uganda. What, when we begin to serve, what happened to Russia is when we dedicated the uh, new um, uh, vocational training school, which our group funded, uh, when we dedicated that about six months ago, the, pr the first lady came to dedicate it with all her bodyguards and so forth. Well, you can imagine Hillary Clinton coming to dedicate one of your new buildings, Rush. It's not going to happen. Of course, we wouldn't want her there. Maybe we would want her if we could simply figure out a way to contain her and not let her out again. Um, be a good use of a building, I suppose, you know. But in any case, I digress. So here the First Lady comes uh, and gives a big speech, and the First Lady is a Christian in Uganda, incidentally. So, once again, um, we see how all this strategy has paid off, and in Uganda, um, our man there, uh, who's an American by the name of Jay Dangers, uh, uh, his vision, and he doesn't have the funding for this yet, but his vision is to open a discipleship school for training um, young men and women and then sending them throughout Africa. And incidentally, he's an, you don't know Jay yet, uh, Rush, but he knows you. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets the magazine. And when I first introduced him to the magazine, um, which was several years ago, it was one of the, in November 94, because we had the, uh, my article and Monty's article about what we were doing in Africa, and I gave it to Jay, and he says, gee, these are all the same ideas I have. And um, so he'd already uh, been eclectically collecting a lot of these ideas, uh, but he is definitely a Reconstructionist, and here he wants to start a discipleship school there in the heart of Uganda and send men out into, um, into the neighboring, you know, uh, not only villages, but, but the neighboring countries as well. So I could go on and on, but this, this I think... Um, uh, you know, gives our listeners a little overview that uh, while things may look rather discouraging in this country, that the whole, you know, Christ told us to go and disciple the nations, plural, just didn't say our own nation. And as I have said before, sometimes when your own nation is not receptive, you, you simply need to look beyond the borders. And I realize for our listeners, of course, they're not going to go to Uganda and they're not going to go to Mexico. They live in this country. Um, although I should say that um, if some of you uh, uh, people listening have um, some skills, uh, particularly um, anything physical, you know, plumbers, carpenters, uh, nurses, dentists, doctors, uh, anything that might be useful in the third world, Nicaragua or Mexico, 
um, our uh, places down there would be uh, delighted to host you for a week or two while you use your skills there on, on behalf of, uh, of our local work. And obviously they refer to this as short-term mission trips and um, we do do that. So several families are rush who have learned of this are actually you know gotten a burden to move down there and they're actually taking their families and and in this case moving to uh, Nicaragua mm -hmm. uh, to care for um, you know for some orphans but uh, anyway it is working um, okay how do you finance how's the Samaritan group how are all these things financed I mean money doesn't grow on trees so well, take out your wallet, Andrew. We're taking up an offering right now. That's why I was reluctant to ask the question. I know you were. Um, well, you know, this is a great thing here that God has providentially um, provided for us is about 80 to 90 percent of what we're doing, and this costs millions. We're, uh, our folks listening here, what we're talking about here is a 5 to $10 million a year budget. And one is that total for uh, for all of the yes Samaritan. yeah for for our whole Samaritan group um, and um, and for all of these countries and for instance total into Nicaragua we put about five million dollars since 1990 into Mexico we put about a half million dollars um, uh, 90 80 to 90 percent of that money um, is provided in a very unique way um, and that is that people in around the world uh, have sent their money in based on just their interest in well actually let me back up a minute this our Samaritan group as I mentioned is a um, an alliance of a dozen different groups several of these groups are structured as international relief and development charities so they have received lots of funds to do what we would call mercy work you know feed the orphans for instance um, or educational things, uh, medical clinics. So these groups, which are members of our Samaritan group, they, since they're receiving funds to basically, you know, help people in Mercy Works, they pay for that aspect of our work. Um, so we've gotten 80% to 90% of our, of our work paid for in that way. So we have not had to, you know, tap into, um, for instance, uh, you know, the friends that are listening today. And I should say that Rush has been very generous uh, um, writing up what we've been doing in the magazine. Um, we've had people respond. One man responded, uh, the man who I asked for, we mentioned needed prayer this week, as a matter of fact, Rush, he, he went down to Nicaragua, was a builder. Matter of fact, he read the magazine, clipped out the article, and pinned it on his bulletin board and said, when I get some money, I'm going to help those people start businesses in Nicaragua. And um, he did well one year, went down to Nicaragua and uh, saw what we were doing and left behind a check for $15,000, which started a whole lot of businesses. Um, so Rush has helped. Where our need is now, Andrew, as I said, we've got 80 to 90% of this covered. What we don't have funds for is really in one way the most important thing what we're doing and what our listeners uh, today are going to be interested in and that is the the funds that are needed to actually do the the discipleship the re the discipleship and reconstructionism the the supplying of books and tapes um, the uh, seminars 
those funds have not are, are not available nearly as much as we need them um, and you can imagine why because as I said these groups who have money that you know have gotten charitable grants those those charitable grants would you know are applied only to doing you know, like feeding centers and orphans they're not applied to us going down there and doing a seminar so we have to rely on a few friends around the country um, and so if any of our listeners today you know would like to uh, you know help with a donation in that respect um, it would be very much needed let me give you an, a, spe a specific example our team just came back from Uganda um, the folks in Uganda want us to come back and oh I'm glad I, I left out with the best part with the Uganda thing I forgot to say Russia as I think you know when our t teaching team was over there which consisted of three men um, uh, Dr. Monty Wilson who writes for the Calcedon Report, Bill Mickler who has written in it mm -hmm. in the past, you know Bill and then uh, Dr. Karsten Hoboom, a medical doctor who is the uh, who is um, assisting Dr. Schermacher and myself mm -hmm. in Germany. Those three men went there. They ministered for six weeks to 5,000 different church leaders. Everything from charismatic pastors to Anglican priests. Over there, the Anglicans are very conservative. They're essentially Calvinists in Uganda, the Anglican church. And so our men were over there, and, and they go to each group for a week. Well, the point is, and imagine, you know, uh, ministering to thousands of leaders, and these guys are just eating up the message. Well, we've been asked to go back again, and we don't have the money to do it. Um, we've been asked to go back, give more seminars, open up a library, and open up a permanent discipleship school there. Um, we have a similar opportunity or similar needs in, in Mexico and Nicaragua. Uh, where much, much more assistance is needed in terms of building libraries, in terms of uh, projecting our teaching teams into these areas, uh, publishing books, particularly books that are translated so they can read them. Um, and, and so th this is where we're lacking, Andrew, for, you know, for funds. So again, anything that would be sent to us, unless it was earmarked, particularly for the orphans, as I mentioned, in Rwanda or Burunda, anything that would be sent to us um, would be applied to uh, what we would call uh, reconstructionist uh, training in these countries. So the charitable side for the most part is doing well, it's the educational side that's suffering. That's suffering. Well, we need both of those, uh, both are essential. Well, when you look at the American public, as our listeners will probably understand pretty readily, uh, the American public is very willing to give to charitable causes. So we don't have much trouble raising money for charitable causes. Clearly, the American public and the American church is not willing to finance the forthright Reconstructionist message. And that's where we have trouble raising funds for that. But we've got 90% of the work done, and we just need a little help doing that extra 10%. But, of course, that extra 10% is the key you know, to, the whole, you know, to the whole project. Um, I should give the well, address again, maybe? Please give the address again, and before you do, I'd like to thank you, Colonel, for uh, taking the time to do this. And I want to tell our listeners that uh, we are trying to help other groups and other individuals 
We wish we could also help them to come here periodically and give a report. We did have Peter Hammond here recently, but it was such a hurried visit. Perhaps next time we'll get him on tape. Uh, we did help uh, Monty Wilson with his finances for his trip, and we hope to get a report from him uh, for the report. But there are so many others, Aaron Kayayan working in French-speaking Africa and others like him. It's a great work that you are a part of. Yes. And I urge you, please, do support Colonel Donor. He'll give you the address again. And before he does, I want to say God bless you for listening. God prompt you to do more for his kingdom. All right, Colonel. All right, once again, friends, our address for the Samaritan group is 12215. So that's 12215 University Boulevard, Suite 130. 130 Orlando, Florida 32817. That's 32817. And thank you for uh, listening. And to all my friends out there I know personally, hello and uh, you know, drop me a line, say hi sometime. Thank you, Colonel. One last question. I was sitting here remembering a very happy day when Dorothy and I came to your wedding and I had a small part in the ceremony. What year was that? 1985. 1985. Been 11, 11 years. years. 11 yes. years. Uh, October. That that was a wonderful wedding. I, yes. <laughs> some of these people were probably probably there. We said never had such an unusual combination been on the platform. There was Dr. Rush Dooney, Tim LaHaye, uh, Dennis Peacock, of course, um, and Bob Bob Mumford yes. was there, uh, and the White House had sent their special representative, um, Carolyn Sunseth, came out from the White House. So it was quite a yes. to, to do. But I don't think Miriam would have married me if she had known that she had your approval on it, Rush. That was the, <laughs> she she was looking for why the wise men of God to make sure that this uh, redheaded guy was okay. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.